Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus and the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Amen. (laughs) Well, we find ourselves... self I believe in the 17th week of a series called Identity. So we're at the end. This is going to be our final installment. And this message will be called Open-Eyed Battle. And we're covering again the very end of Ephesians 6, which is the whole armor of God. Let me tell you this. A couple weeks ago... Uh, Brandon and I and the other pastors went to a conference right, at uh, Calvary Chapel South Bay. And it was a pastor's conference, and uh, it was pretty cool. There was some cool stuff happening. And the theme, I guess you could say, of the conference was called Fight the Good Fight. We even got those little, like, lanyards that you could, like, hook your keys on. And right here it says... Fight the good fight. First Timothy 6.12, right? And um, as we entered like session after session, I think we went to like a total of eight sessions or something like that. Um, what I found myself unfortunately kind of disappointed with was at the end of everything, I found myself saying in my head, Well, so what do you want me to do? Well, so what is the good fight? And it was kind of unfortunate, but it wasn't clearly defined during that talk. So I heard a lot of stuff that weekend. 
but I didn't hear a lot of clear explanation of this is what the good fight is, and this is what you're to do. And that would have been kind of helpful at a conference called Fight the Good Fight, <laughs> maybe. But it was an awesome time. And it did stir something in my heart that's got me wondering what really is the good fight. And so we come to Ephesians 6. And it's interesting because that verse out of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12, that says, fight the good fight of faith, right? That is Paul telling young pastor Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And there is relevance to our book that we have just are concluding Ephesians because Timothy was a young pastor of Ephesus, right? So if you look at these two letters and keep in mind that connection, you're realizing that they're written into the same context. And although Ephesians is addressed to the church of Ephesus and Timothy is addressed to the pastor Timothy, it's the same context. It's the same situations. They're dealing with the same struggles, problems, issues, plurality in society. And he tells young pastor Timothy over Ephesus, okay, fight the good fight of faith. And so we can hold that up as we take a look at something like in Ephesians 6 where it says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. Right? And now this brings us to a question. When it says, fight the good fight, put on this whole armor so that you can stand... What are we fighting and how are we to fight, right? And so if we begin to answer that question, we think, well, where, where's Paul coming from, right? What's his perspective? What's his worldview? How does he understand this entity that he is telling us to fight against, fight a good fight against? How, how does he perceive it? Well, we know that Paul is a Jew, right? And he's steeped in the Jewish worldview. His understanding of the origins of the world uh, flow out of Genesis. And he knows the Old Testament like he knows the back of his hand. Right? This forms Paul's identity. So if we're taking that basis, the Genesis account basis, for how to understand the world, we got to go back to Genesis. And what we know, the creation account tells us that God made a garden that he called Eden. Eden, Hebrew word that means delight. It's like, it's perfect. It's utopia, right? And he set himself up as king over Eden. And he created for himself image bearers, right? Adam, and then from Adam's rib, he made Eve. And these were his image bearers, and they were supposed to represent him in Eden. They were, the, they were supposed to manifest his rule in Eden, right? Well, not too much time passes, and before you know it, a creepy little serpent comes creeping his way into the Garden of Eden, right? And he 
as we know now, he is the embodiment of what we know as the Satan, the devil, right? And the, the Satan in the Jewish understanding was known as the accuser and the adversary. And he had kind of two schemes, right? He had two modes of doing his deeds. There were temptation and accusation. And it identifies the serpent as crafty. He's cunning. He is sneaky. He hides his motives. What he's doing, you don't really see what he's up to. You're kind of sidestepped like like a magic trick, like sleight of hand, right? This hand is moving so fast that you don't see what this hand is doing. So he would lead people astray. And now he uses one of his schemes, that's temptation, against Adam. And he tempts Adam to become his own king. No longer submitted to the rule of the real king. He says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be just like God. And what's God like? Well, he's king. If you eat of this fruit, you too can be king. Right? So we know what happens. And well, first Eve is tempted. Then Adam, who is the head, is tempted. So he possesses the responsibility in this case. And the, the devil or the serpent, he's cursed. As God is dealing out curses, he says to the serpent, um, you're now going to slither on the ground. So if you wanted to know why sl snakes are like creepy, that's why. And he says, okay, there's going to be a seed from Eve's womb and he will crush her head and you will bruise his heel. And we eventually know that to be the Messiah figure. And another thing, key thing that he says there in Genesis 3.15 is, there will now be enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. And this word enmity is key. This is what we see as the first instance of what we are fighting the good fight against. What we are putting the whole armor of God for this enmity, which is another way to say like conflict. This is a spiritual conflict. This is something that goes, as Paul says, beyond flesh and blood. It has to do with the cosmic struggle for good, bad, who is ruling, who has power, authority over everything in this world, right? So we fast forward to today, and we see typically to this response or this ongoing battle, which is, by the way, unseen, we see kind of two typical responses. Um, there's either, oh my gosh, everything is the devil, right? I burned my toast this morning, the devil. I stubbed my toe, the devil. There are people that see the devil around every bush and around every corner, right? And in this way, they're reacting to the devil in a way that is fearful and superstitious, right? They see something happen 
People that are superstitious, they see something happen and they point the blame or the credit to a cause, right? The angels won because you were holding your lucky rabbit foot, right? Superstitious. Sports people are super superstitious. Oh, a rally monkey. <laughs> a rally monkey, yeah. And if you didn't have the rally monkey, or if he wasn't, like, hugging your neck, then, then that was probably why the angels lost, right? Exactly. So people get this way about the devil. Anything that goes wrong in life, they give way too much credit to the devil. He is the author, apparently, of everything that is wrong or at least why I call wrong in my mind, like burnt toast, that is just wrong. <laughs> that is terrible. Burnt yeah. to the crisp chicken. To the crisp chicken. That's probably the devil, right? So, so these people who are who are being, they're giving too much credit to the devil. Too much credit for every effect that is, in my eyes, wrong. He is the cause. Right, This superstitious, over-fearful, they're afraid of the devil and his devices and his schemes and what he does. Because he's coming out of nowhere, he's got my worst interests at heart, and he wants to make everything bad happen to me, including burning my toast. That schmuck. <laughs> so, so that's one response. There's another response... And that is that nothing is the devil, right? And that's, well, I mean, maybe there's like groups within the church that are really superstitious or really fearful or paranoid and not in touch with reality. And those are the groups who would maybe attribute everything to the devil. And then in other portions of the church, uh, people who think they're enlightened, they're sophisticated, they're modern, they're up with the times. We don't deal with that superstitious medieval kind of, you know, you sneeze, so I have to say, God bless you, because there's a demon inside you, right? But the people who are sophisticated, who only judge life by what they can see, who only judge life objectively and scientifically, those people would say nothing is the devil. Nothing is the devil. Because the spiritual realm, I can't see it, can't smell it, taste it, touch it. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Nothing is the devil. Right? And this is just a product of post-enlightenment empiricism. Empiricism, like, I have my senses, right? My five senses. And anything that I can touch taste, see, hear, smell. Is that all of them? I don't know. Uh, those are empirical senses. So any evidence that I can obtain with those senses, that is empirical evidence. And apparently, according to scientists, that is the only thing that is trustworthy and nothing else. Because I am the ultimate arbitrator in this universe of what is legitimate true real right so after the enlightenment when we thought we were all sophisticated and proper and we don't believe in 
the unseen anymore and the invisible and the spiritual realm. And we don't believe in these superstitious medieval ways anymore. We've, we've progressed past that. Now, nothing is the devil. And anybody who would attribute anything to the devil, they would, they would be naive, duped. They would be misunderstanding, right? So there's, there's these two modes. There's either the fearful way or there's the flippant way of looking at evil in this world. And I think what Paul is wanting us to do based on his advice, both to Timothy and to the Ephesian church, fight the good fight of faith and also put on the whole armor of God, is somewhere in the middle. It's very real, but I don't want you to be paranoid and superstitious and fearful about this fight. But don't be flippant either and assume that it doesn't exist because then you'll totally be reamed. You'll totally be ran over and taken advantage of. And you'll have attacks flying at you from all these directions and you don't even know they're hitting you because you don't acknowledge that the spiritual realm even exists. Right? So Paul's advice to us is right here in the middle. What we would maybe call gospel-centered not running to one extreme or the other, but right here in the center. He says, right here, I want you to put on the gospel and stand. Put the gospel on like it's clothes or like it's armor, right? And stand right here. See, in identity, we talk a lot about be who you are and We've spent many messages discovering who we are and what that means, right? And then how we're to walk or how we're to conduct ourselves. But now when we talk about put on the gospel and stand, we're not saying be who you are. We're saying be where you are. With eyes wide open, fully aware of everything that's going on around you. Not being duped, not being fearful because fear taints our vision, right? Not being flippant because flippant is proud and pride taints our vision. But in full humility, in full acknowledgement of all realities, seen and unseen, powers and principalities, heaven and earth, invisible and visible, with eyes wide open to all the realities that are going on around us, stand right here because there's a battle raging all around you. And whether you acknowledge it or not, it's happening. So we have a choice of disregard it, or I'm going to lump all these into one category. Disregard it, be flippant about it, pretend it doesn't exist. It'd be continually attacked without knowing what's going on in your life. Or be afraid of it, be superstitious about it, not really understand it, attribute everything to the devil, and be fighting a fight that isn't real. Because you're not fighting the real devil, you're fighting some made-up image of him, the one that makes your toast burn, right? Now question, do we want to fight this made-up superstitious devil that makes our toast burn, or do we want to fight the real one in the real battle for our lives in the battle of cosmic good and evil. The same one who entered the garden and tempted 
Adam to become his own king. Right? Well, again, let's think about Paul. So we've kind of identified the fight. Now we're asking the question, how are we to fight? Right? And we think about Paul's situation when he was writing the letter to the Ephesians. And we know that he's in prison. Right? And as he's sitting in prison and he's wondering how to address this church that he helped form and start and raise up leadership and point him in the right direction. And he's raising up Timothy as a young pastor and he's writing letters to Timothy to tell him to not let people look down on him because he's young and now fight the good fight of faith and don't lose heart and all this stuff. His situation is in prison. And as he's looking around in prison, he's maybe getting inspiration for like what he's going to write into his letter, right? And as he's sitting there in prison, he might be looking over at a Roman guard, right? And he wants to say something in his letter about battle. And he looks over at the guard and he goes, well, that guy knows something about battle, right? And he's not just going into it haphazardly or in an untrained way or in an unarmored way. He's going into battle prepared and ready for what's going to happen. Well, what makes him that way? His eyes are open to danger. He's aware of reality. He's not fighting an invisible foe, but a real foe. He can't strike until the foe is within striking distance, right? Or he's going to launch a spear and lose it. Well, he sees this well-trained Roman guard who's ready and attentive, eyes wide open. And the guy's also wearing armor. And although he's not in battle right now, he's wearing armor, right? He's got like a helmet and a breastplate and a belt and shoes on his feet so that he's not stepping on all kinds of rocks. He's got a shield and he's got a sword. He's got all the pieces of armor that are necessary to be engaged in battle so that at a moment's notice, if some attack were to come, he would be at the ready. And he could call his comrades and they could join forces and do whatever needs to be done. Not making it up as they go along, but basing it on their training and on their know-how and experience and expertise, right? So he writes this to the Ephesian church. He's telling them to be strong in the strength of Lord and in his might. And he tells them, put on the whole armor of God so that you can be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The way that he tempts, the way that he accuses, the way that he goes about his business in his invisible way, in his sleight-of-hand, mischievous way, in his crafty and cunning way, the way that he operates in his schemes. And he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, this is verse 13, that you may be able to be withstand in the day of evil, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, right, the truth of the gospel, And what is the truth of the gospel? 
And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel that tells us that we are righteous in Christ. And shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Right? Shoes so that we don't step on any rocks and that we're ready to go at a moment's notice. Of the gospel of peace. Peace is important. We'll get to that. Think about that, though. Peace in the midst of a fight. Crazy. 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. That's faith in the gospel. For which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The devil. Take up the helmet of salvation. Put it on yourself. Salvation that is told about in the story of the gospel. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right? The place in which we find the story of the gospel. And this is important too. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So this whole armor of Christ, it's centered around the gospel. And you're putting on breastplate, shield, belt, shoes, helmet, shield, sword, pieces of the gospel. So what he's telling the Ephesian church is put on the gospel and stay right where you are. Not running like you're afraid. Right where you are. And not flippant that the evil doesn't exist, but like that Roman guard over there who knows that a battle could happen in a moment's notice and you're ready. Right? Put on the gospel and stand still. And now there's a role that you and I play in this battle. Just like there was a role that Adam played in the garden. Right? And now he had the, the benefit of perfection, pristine, utopia. And we have now descended to this dystopia. But we can get cynical and uh, pessimistic and look at the world and be like, well, why even do anything? Because there's evil in the world. Why even try? Because something's just going to go wrong anyways. But in that case, the devil has already won. Because he's convinced you to be apathetic. And if that Roman soldier is standing over there and I could somehow trick him into being apathetic, then his side has already lost now there's this role that you and I play. And in fact, Paul is saying, put on this armor of God and pray. Well, now is prayer a part of the armor of God? I don't know, maybe. You know what he doesn't mention when he mentions this armor that he talks about, the armor of God? He doesn't mention shin guards, right? They would wear those. Right? They had their sandals or shoes or whatever. And then right here, so that their legs wouldn't be like totally messed up, they had metal plates over their shins. But he doesn't mention those. But think about it. How do we pray? On our knees. Our shins are on the ground. 
And I think that maybe prayer is a part of the armor of God. And that's the active role that we play. Paul even says, pray for me. Too many people are too proud to say, hey, pray for me. I don't always want to tell people, pray for me. Because I don't want to tell them there's something wrong with me. There is. But think about this. As we find ourselves in this battle... And as we're playing our role, putting on the whole armor of God, not being afraid or running off in any directions, not being apathetic and pretending like, oh, whatever, it doesn't exist, or I shouldn't even fight. I want to think about the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we know that we clearly see battle going on in there, right? And when Aslan is not present... Many of the creatures of Narnia are hidden away, right? They're hiding because they know that evil is out there. They may be saying that everything is the devil. Everything is the the witch's fault. And they're hiding. And if he's got you hiding and afraid that everything is the devil, then you've already lost But think now about why these people or these creatures and animals, children, can be bold. Because although there is winter over the face of Narnia, there's the curse. And the witch is apparently ruling. As soon as Aslan starts coming in, you you see the snow melting away and spring is coming with him. Right? And as we put on the armor of God and as we play our role and as we continue steadfastly in prayer, praying for one another, holding each other up, putting on the gospel and standing firm and not pretending that the evil doesn't exist, right? And not pretending that it's everywhere and prevalent and I just have to hide. I can't show my face. But we can boldly walk in the steps of Aslan or Christ as he brings spring into Narnia. Because we're not fighting the battle alone, but the battle is won. And the devil is conquered. First Peter says that he's like a roaring lion, you know, prowling around looking for someone to devour. Well, when is a lion most dangerous? Well, probably when it's hungry, but how about when it's cornered and hungry? When its back is up against the wall, right? The devil has his back up against the wall. Christ has already won the decisive victory on the cross. Now his days are numbered. His back is up against the wall. He's at his most dangerous. And he's fighting... Not the good fight, but the bad fight. The fight is going on, and there's two sides of it, good, bad. He's fighting the bad fight. And we can't pretend like that doesn't exist. So how do we fight the good fight? Having put on the gospel armor and standing firm right where we are, not being afraid, not being flippant, but fully, presently engaged 
Prayer is engagement. Prayer is actively participating in the battle at hand. How do we, with Aslan or with Christ, bring spring? Well, I think it's by living the good life. That's fighting the good fight. Living the good life. Not out there charging some invisible devil that doesn't exist. But standing right where you are, fully armored, fully present, eyes wide open to the battle at hand, praying and living the good life. What is the good life? The life that Christ saved us for. The resurrection life. Remember back to Ephesians 2 when it says, You were once dead in your trespasses, but you're now made alive in Christ. So that you can now walk out good deeds. That's what it is. You were dead. You were resurrected with Christ to now be alive. And now you can live a life marked by good deeds. The good life. The resurrection life. And in a very practical sense, what does that look like for us as young people, as Christians, as high schoolers or college students? Well, I think this. I think a battle that's being fought over us every single day is for our purity. Right? And if he can defeat us there, he's won. He's removed all our armor. Right? Teenagers lacking a whole lot of wisdom and self-control and the experience of life. Easily duped by the craftiness. Easily duped by impure things. Easily duped by the devil's sleight of hand and his craftiness and his schemes and his wiles, his temptations. And saying, look, You can have what you want right now. You can be in control. You can be your own king. And that's just falling for the same stuff that Adam fell for. Right? So, pursuing our purity is how we fight the good fight. That's not it, but that's one thing. How about our apathy? If we honestly ask ourselves, how many of us are apathetic about life? about what we're doing, about why we're here, about the glass is half empty, about, oh my gosh, everybody, the devil burnt my toast, come on, right? And if the devil is constantly just some scapegoat or some excuse for why you're not doing well in life, we could be filled with apathy, can't we? And that's not pointing the finger at the real devil and saying, oh, look it, he's battling against good. We've got to fight the good fight. That's using him as a scapegoat and saying, well, he ruined it. I can't, I can't do anything now. How about this idea of Christians fulfilling Abraham's commission to be a blessing to the world? Abraham was called out, called to Yahweh. He says, listen, Abraham, I know you're advanced in years, but you're going to have a son, right? Even though your wife is barren. 
and your descendants are going to outnumber the sand on the seashore. And I am going to bless you, Abraham, so that you can bless the world. The world can be blessed through you. I'm not blessing you so you can hold on to everything. I'm blessing you as a conduit. You are an avenue through which I can bless the world. Right? And now that those descendants that outnumber the sand on the seashore, that's us in Christ. Because remember, we're adopted. We're part of that family. So the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that is currently taking place through us. And if we're not fighting the good fight, and if we're not living the good life, if we're not living the resurrection life, if we're not walking with Christ to bring spring into Narnia, well then he's winning. If we're hoarding our blessing to ourselves. He's winning. We've got to get out there. And now he says something key when he talks about the shoes. And the, the part of the gospel that is correlated with the shoes is the shoes of the gospel of peace. Right? What are we supposed to do with this good fight? What are we supposed to do with this good life? What are we supposed to do with this gospel armor on us? With this continual steadfast prayer, what are we to do? Or to do what he is doing in the world. And what he is doing in the world is restoring and putting back together everything that is broken. Into a renewed state that once existed but is now flown apart. A renewed state called shalom. Right? The Hebrew word for peace. The Hebrew word that means everything is <laughs> everything is alive. Everything is flourishing. Everything is blessing and being blessed. Everything is benefiting, growing. It's spring. It's no longer winter. He's putting the pieces back together of everything that has been scattered about. He's won the decisive victory over the devil, sin, and death. Now by giving us his Holy Spirit, he's telling us to walk out the same path that he is walking. The way. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) We are to be shalom bringers to this world. We are to be imitating his restoration. We are to be fighting a good fight, not against some devil who burns toast, but against the real cosmic battle of good and evil, the battle for souls, the battle for our purity, the battle for our health and our wellness, and Paul being in prison, persecuted for the sake of the gospel and for righteousness' sake. That's the battle. We need to have our eyes open to what the real battle is. We need to put on the gospel armor. Stand right here. Be where we are. Engaged. Fully present. Praying. Interacting. Here. Fighting the good fight. Living the good life. And bringing shalom with Jesus to this land that we're in. 
Amen? <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for what you are doing in the world. Lord, give us open eyes to see it. Help us to participate in it. God, help us to fight the good fight, live the good life. God, let us constantly be present in the place, in the moment that we're in. Let us not be looking for a method of escape. Let us not be looking for excuses to blame on the devil. God, let us be awakened to the reality of what is really going on right in front of us. And let us consciously decide to fight with you on your side and what you are up to in this world. In your name, amen.